The scripture reading for this morning is from John 15, 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you are not silent, but that you care for us and that you speak to us through your word. We find at times your word to be challenging, confusing perhaps, um, and yet, Lord, we know that your spirit has been given to us that would bring clarity and understanding. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would work within our lives. I pray that I would not somehow get in the way, that uh, we would benefit from being fed from your word. Help us not only understand it, but to know how to apply it to our lives. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of months ago, uh, I was with you, had the opportunity to uh, to preach, and in doing so, we were looking at the same passage that was read this morning, and I uh, would like us to go back to that same passage and look at it from a little bit different perspective, maybe accent some of the things that we were talking about a number of months ago. I shared with you that when I was uh, just recently out of high school, that I was concerned about the... Uh, that was after the Civil War now, come on, it's not... I was concerned about the relationship that I had developed with this girl that I was dating. And I, I mentioned to you that I thought that there would be uh, some need to define the way in which we uh, were viewing each other. And I felt like the best way to discern the real nature of the relationship would be by proposing to this girl I was dating. And uh, to my surprise, because I didn't really expect her to say yes at the time, but she did, and that totally changed our relationship. And that's Debbie, and the many of you know my wife, and uh, you have a sense of, of a little bit of our background. But let me say this to you. What would it have been like if after I had proposed to Debbie, and she said yes, and we agreed that we were going to get married, if nothing had happened? In other words, we kind of went on our way, we... Uh, maybe occasionally ran into each other. We talked uh, a little bit, but we never, we never furthered this commitment, this incredible commitment that we made to each other. Well, you would have found it a little bit odd. And as you know, there are indeed consequences to words. There, there are meaning to words. And so, if I if I say to Debbie, uh, I would like you to be my wife, I am in essence saying to her, for the rest of my life, I am making a commitment to you. And she, in return, made a commitment to me. Now, 
Standing here before you, well over 40 years later, I can tell you there were definite consequences to those words. I didn't date anyone else since then, right? I mean, you weren't going to find me going out with other women. You weren't going to, you weren't going to find me in, uh, in, in a life circumstances that just were not consistent with what it meant for me to commit myself to Debbie. And so we made plans to get married. We went through a wedding. We had, we had a honeymoon in Vermont. And it was, this was in the middle of winter. And we went skiing. And we had, you know, lots of fun. And now that it's over almost 40 years later, well, it's over 40 years since the time I uh, proposed to her, I can tell you that the consequences are vast. And they're amazing. And they're incredible. And they're absolutely wonderful. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. And I would also tell you that the consequences were far beyond what I could have ever, ever imagined. In a similar way, when someone makes a commitment to Christ, when you come to terms with your your sin and your need for God, and you surrender Him in repentance and faith, and you you say to him, Lord, you are now the Lord of my life. I am surrendering my life to you. There are indeed definite consequences to those words and to what is happening within your heart. This morning, the passage that we have read, I believe, helps us understand some of these consequences. And you'll note that when Jesus here, which is during the what we call the upper room discourse, is speaking specifically to his disciples, that I believe not only are those words to his disciples important for them, but I believe also have lots of implications for us almost some 2,000 years later. And it's interesting to me to see the way in which Jesus is defining the relationship. Now, he uses what I would call earthly uh, image, images, uh, earthly terms, right? It's very agricultural in nature. I don't know how many of you maybe have grown up in an environment, maybe on a farm or someplace where you're used to working with dirt. Jim says, yeah, he has. And uh, probably all of you have had at least time working a pot of soil or something of that nature. But you know what it means to be earthy. It's very different than maybe the circumstances that most of us find ourselves in in terms of the day-to-day. Many of us here, I'm sure, uh, work in offices, and there's glass windows, and there's climate-controlled environments, and there's, there's a desk and chairs and just all the proper things you would expect in a workplace. But if you're in this earthy environment, in this agricultural environment that Jesus is giving, as he refers to being a vine and a branch and the vine dresser and all these images... You're, you're thinking of what it's like to be out in the sun and to be working with the dirt and, and have your hands dirty and, and, and your clothes soiled. You might think about the, the moisture that comes to, to bring life to these plants and the patience that it takes to see something take place. It doesn't happen necessarily in the course of days or even weeks. Sometimes it might take years. And so you're waiting. And so instead of sitting in front of a, a keyboard or a, a computer and typing away and sending out emails and messages, you're sitting there or you're waiting, not for an email to come back, but for the plants to grow and to mature and to eventually, in time, to produce fruit. 
And that's really what you're looking for. It is a very frustrating thing for a farmer, uh, for someone who has the care of a vineyard, to do all this incredible work, to spend all that time to wait, and then for nothing to happen. There's going to be, there's going to be fruit from it. And so these are the kinds of images that Jesus wants us to, to have in our thinking as we think about our relationship with God. That what it means when he talks about abiding, to remain, to be committed, totally committed, means that there are going to be consequences. Now, I realize that in some circumstances, when I use the word or when the word consequence is used, it sounds somewhat negative. And I will say to you, there is a negative side to this relationship that Jesus is describing here in regards to what it means to be a, a branch connected to the vine and this vine dresser. Now, as you think about the, the image that Jesus brings here and this commitment and the consequences of the commitment, there are two basic things that I would like you to think about this morning as you consider your own relationship with Christ or maybe in some cases the absence of such relationship. You might have come here today hoping that Duke was going to be preaching. Instead, you've got this other guy that uh, you know, doesn't look like Duke at all, and I don't even look Asian. So, you know, what's, what's going on here? You're thinking that the church is changing, but I promise you it's just a temporary thing just for this morning. But as you think about this dynamic of being connected to Christ, of not just being connected, but being totally committed, and the consequences, the first thing that I want you to note is the nature of what it means to know God and the identity that God has given within this passage. Now, here's what I mean. Often throughout the scriptures, you'll find that as a means of helping us understand who God is and how he works, you're given different images, right? For example, in Psalm 23, uh, we all know, perhaps, or at least have heard of the, that famous psalm, The Lord is my shepherd. And in that particular part of the scriptures, we're reminded that, that we're to view God as our shepherd, and we are his sheep, the people of God. Uh, other places you'll see that uh, there's an architectural uh, view of our relationship with God in terms of the foundation and the building. You see that in Ephesians. Or maybe the, the head and the body is another image that is, that is given. We are the body and the Lord is the head. Or maybe even the idea of marriage is often presented as a way of helping us better understand our relationship with God. But in this particular passage, we're given a relatively new, not totally new, but a little bit different angle when it comes to how we are to view God. And in this case, it's that of a vine dresser. I don't know how many of you have ever met or spent any time with a vine dresser. I, I can't say that I... I have. Everything that I know pretty much is what I have read uh, about vine dressers or those who have vineyards and spend a lot of time uh, in the fields in that regards. But I know that there are lots of things that we would expect that a vine dresser would be aware of. But let me just ask you this before we go any further. Is it possible that you really don't want God as your vine dresser? You know, when we talk about God being our friend, and the Bible refers to that, uh, Abraham was the friend of God, and, and we understand that. We like that term. That sounds, that sounds pretty safe. But when we talk about God being our vine dresser, is that really something 
that we want. Let me just read to you uh, something I picked up that helps us understand some of the responsibilities of a vine dresser. Here's one. Pruning. Pruning is one of the preeminent tasks of a vine dresser. A vine dresser must have knowledge of the two most common ways to prune grapevines, cane and spur pruning. Now, I'll tell you, I'm not familiar with these particulars. These pruning techniques take into consideration the shape and consistency of the vine. Pruning is an essential task as it removes dead, diseased, or stunted fruit to make room for new growth, ultimately leading to a healthy and productive vine. Now, if I may, just accent that last part of the work of a vine dresser. The removing of dead, diseased, and stunted fruit. Now, what application could that possibly have for us? I think if we're honest, all of us would have to agree that there are certain things about our lives that we would like to see changed. Now, you know, maybe change of a job or change of housing or something of that nature. But the Bible is very clear that those who come to Christ and understand the gospel understand that they come as those who are in need. I don't present myself to God and say, Lord, look how wonderful I am. Aren't you lucky that you found me? That you, that, that you discovered me? Isn't this a wonderful thing? No. I come to God with a heavy heart. As someone who needs the gospel, Jesus says, I, I've come not to heal those who are well. I've come for those who are sick, who are in need. And that means also, as someone who has surrendered themselves to Christ, that they will continually see their need for the gospel. I, I do believe that there is a tendency for us, sometimes as Christians, to almost think or at least live our lives out as that. You know what? The issue of sin is something in the past. My needs were in the past. But presently, you know, because I belong to Christ, well, I, I don't have any needs. I'm holy. And it's true that our sins have been forgiven and we have been declared righteous and we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But that also means that I need Christ to do that and that I am, in essence, a needy person. Have you ever thought about all the passages in the Scripture referring to the people of God and their constant need for forgiveness? Even within our worship today, we, we spend some time accenting worship. I mean, accenting the need within uh, our worship to seek God's forgiveness. I remember, if you you think back when David read or David wrote Psalm 51 after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And in that Psalm, Psalm 51, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Do you, do you have that view of your own life? That there is continual need for examination, continual need, in essence, for a vine dresser to be working and moving in your life and to be showing you where where there is 
parts of your life that need to be pruned, taken away. I mentioned that when we think about this aspect of our relationship with God, that there is, in a sense, a negative side to it. So therefore, I use the word consequences uh, for that reason. But the negative side is a good negative. It's good pain. I want a vine dresser in my life showing me my sin. Uh, my uh, Debbie, my wife, is a physical therapist. Some of you know this. And she'll tell me sometimes about patients that she have that she has that they have some kind of condition or disease where they lose the feeling, maybe in their hands or in their feet. And you know what happens when you lose that sensation of feeling? You burn yourself, but you don't know it. You've injured, you've cut your hand, but you don't know it. And little by little, you literally lose not just the feelings, but you lose those parts of your body. Why? Because you no longer can feel pain. You no longer can discern the fact that that was dangerous. And that's why I need the gospel in my life. That's why I need this prune, this uh, vine dresser to be pruning me. Because I, I need to be feeling that pain that says, okay, this is something in your life, Chuck, that needs to be removed. It may be part of my thought process, maybe my goals, the way in which I view the future, or the way in which I view other people, my community that this is an area that needs to be addressed and repented of. So I ask the question again, do you really want a vine dresser to be working within your life? And I hope that you would say, yes, I, I do. Another part of what it means to know this vine dresser is pest control. And it's interesting, it says, keeping pests away from from vines is vital to maintaining the vineyard and ultimately the wine production. To effectively eradicate pests from the crop, the vine dresser must have knowledge of the type of pests common to the region as well, the type of pests attracted to the particular grape species. Many vine dressers choose to spray grapes with chemicals to avoid pests, mold, mildew, other threats to the harvest. Well, I know those who are not into pest control, or that kind of uh, uh, control of, of pests are not going to be prone that way. But the point is, is that you're going to be concerned, if you're a vine dresser, about this outside danger to the vineyard. What possibly could be an outside danger to, to us as God's people? Well, the Bible speaks about the spiritual welfare, spiritual warfare, excuse me, that we are involved in. I think sometimes in modern days, in sophisticated places, we're a little bit concerned about talking too much about Satan. And I can understand that. It almost sounds like we're talking about some kind of a fairy tale, some kind of story that someone made up. But the reality is, the Bible, and especially our Lord, does not hesitate to remind us over and again of the danger of Satan and his schemes. And so Paul, for that reason, in Ephesians chapter 6, reminds us of the spiritual war that is raging, and that it continues to rage. And it's very much present within our lives. I want a vine dresser that is going to be concerned about the spiritual warfare within my life. I want to know that Satan is alive and well, so to speak. And he is working within my life and within my circumstances. And there are many times 
where I am led down a distorted path because of the schemes of Satan. I need the vine dresser. Now, there are other things that we could talk about. We could talk about the the need for fertilization and water and all these other things, but our time won't necessarily allow us. But let me just end with this in terms of this particular point and, and to simply say that I do need moisture. I need water. Jesus says, I am the living water. That means that I need not just knowledge about Christ, and knowledge is important. My theology is important. My understanding of who he is and how he works, all those things are very important. But I need his presence. And I know that that to the world sounds absolutely crazy. But we worship not a sort of a a historical figure when we come together. We worship the living Christ who is alive. And we're not talking about someone who, again, just sort of made certain comments or had some had uh, uh, an incredible ministry of teaching, and now we have the, the record, the historical side of that teaching. No, we come and worship a living Christ who is constantly feeding and constantly watering the branch that desperately, desperately needs it. Now, the second part of what I want you to see when you think about the consequences is that of fruit. So not only do I need to really have a biblical and a a well-grounded understanding of this vine dresser, God as my vine dresser, but I need to understand that ultimately what God is interested in in terms of my relationship with him is the results, the fruit of that relationship. Now, as you would understand, what vineyard would be worth uh, anything unless there were grapes? unless there was actually a time in which there was a harvest, a time in which there was a celebration, because now all this hard work, all this digging, all this protection, all the, all the things that have gone into creating this healthy uh, vine and branches and fruit wasn't producing anything. And so there's rejoicing and there's excitement that now that we're, ha- we're at the harvest, and then there is the pleasure of eating the grapes and taking the grapes and and making them into wine. And the wine sitting there and in time enjoying this incredible fruit of the vine. All these images the Lord wants us to have. And so the question for us is, what does it mean for us to be fruitful? Now, it's interesting that throughout Old and New Testament, there are any number of times where the writers will give us these images, our understanding of what it means to be fruitful. For example, In the New Testament, like in the book of Philippians, Paul says, So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of his praise. Or maybe in the book of Hebrews, where the writer here says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness so that those who have been trained by it. Jesus said to the disciples there at the Upper Room Discourse, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. There's any number of ways, and there are many, hundreds of ways, in which we bear fruit as believers. I'll just give you a few quickly. One is, I think, the way in which we deal with 
times of worry and stress, how we demonstrate what it means to know God and to have Him present within our lives. Uh, the past couple of months, I have, I've been involved in certain things that I've had to just stop and spend time with God and say, Lord, I am so tempted to be anxious now. But I know that my circumstances are under your control. And I've had to be reminded of those things. And I think the way in which we deal with something just as basic as, as reasons for anxiety and stress are part of the fruit that comes out of that. I think also the way in which we demonstrate what it means to be salt and light within the world. When we're with our neighbors or those with, with whom we work, or maybe just somebody that we've just met because we're standing on the metro or, on a, or sitting on a bus and, and some issue comes up, the fact that we would, in essence, be helpful or willing to be helpful. I think the, the fruit of taking care or being concerned about the needs of others is a very significant aspect in regards to what it means for us to be fruitful as individual Christians as well as a church. Some of you may be familiar with a book that came out some years ago by the name, uh, or uh, by the author, a guy by the name of Rodney Stark called The Rise of Christianity. This is a sociologist that uh, spent some time looking at a particular period of history, especially in regards to the Roman Empire. And he, he basically says, look, if you take the Roman Empire at A.D. 300, during the time of Constantine, that one of the questions that you have to ask is this. How many people in the Roman Empire were claiming to be Christians? Now, there's all kinds of discussion in regards to what that exact number might be. No one really knows the exact number. But what we do know is that it was a significant number. Maybe at least as much as 25%, some would say more, some would say a little bit less, but at least 25% of the Roman Empire in AD 300 were claiming to be Christians. Now, that's a very, very large number of people. And if you think about it, the question is, how is it that such a large number of people have come to Christ? And this is what Stark says in terms of, of his treatment of the rise of Christianity. He says, at the very, of course, at the very beginning of the church, there were hardly any people, relatively speaking, percentage-wise, that came to Christ, or that knew Christ. They were coming. And even though it was in the thousands, to some degree, relatively speaking, it was nothing. But he says, here's what happened. You would have a community where there was only maybe a few Christians, maybe out of, um, out of a community of, of, of 5,000, maybe there were less than 1%. But, he said, what would happen in time would be there would be some type of an uh, earthquake or especially a plague. And he said the natural response for most people in a time of a plague was to get out of town. And in certain cases, they would even leave their loved ones or their friends who needed help, but they wouldn't help them. The Christians, in response, would stay there and they would not only nurse and care for their own, but they would care and nurse their, for their, their neighbors. And by the time the epidemic was over, then you'd have less people. But those who had survived, the percentage then of Christians were greater. It was greater because they just simply applied the gospel to their times. 
And what was noted was that in many cases, by just providing some basic nursing care for people, they would survive. So here you are, you don't care anything about Christ, but your neighbor who happens to be a Christian has cared for you and and has loved you. And now that the plague is over and you're well and things are going back to, to normal, you've been impacted by their lives. And likeliness would be, or the likelihood of you coming to Christ was great. And that's what happened. And what, what Stark was showing over and again was that there was this kind of dynamic that was going on throughout the, the Roman Empire so that in time, by, the, by AD 300, by the time of Constantine, you had not just like 1% or less of the Roman Empire Christian, but you had 25 or maybe 30%. Why? Because these people understood, these Christians understood over the course of of many years, of what it meant to be fruitful, to be showing the consequences of their love for Christ and Christ's commitment and love for them. I could go on with that, but you get the point. Let me just bring one other thing to you, and I'll I'll close with this. Clearly, when we think about a Christian bearing fruit, we also would think about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, generosity, fidelity, tolerance, self-control. You, you're familiar with these qualities, with these fruit. When I think about uh, each of those, I'm challenged in my own life. And again, my need for Christ, my Savior. Uh, when we were, uh, some of us together, at a wedding up in Toronto for Yom Ki and Tien, uh, I had the opportunities to share a little bit uh, during the wedding. And I, I brought out this uh, friendship uh, that I have known or have known these, this couple for a long time uh, as a way of simply illustrating what Paul says uh, when he uh, speaks about 1 Corinthians 13, that is the agape, the, the biblical love. Uh, let me read the passage and then let me tell you about this couple that I, I had shared Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic, prophetic, uh, prophetic powers, if I can only speak here, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith and so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, But have not love, I gain nothing. And then he says what love is. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now here's what I said in in the context of that. I said, I was introduced to a friend of my, my sister back when I was in junior high school. This, this girl would come on occasion to our home because my sister had come to Christ and she would have Bible studies when she was in high school. And so she would, her friends would come over and this one friend by the name of Johnny would come in and uh, on occasion I would meet her. And then uh, things kind of went on and, and life had, had changed. And I hadn't seen Johnny for some time. Eventually... Johnny uh, moved from that area of the world. This is the uh, outside of Baltimore. 
And uh, she moved to California. And when she went to California, she met a guy that fell in love with her. And it was almost one of these things, kind of like from first, you know, just first sight. He just, he's, he, in his own heart, said, I, this is the gal that I want to marry. And so uh, Ken is his name, and, and uh, he started dating uh, Johnny, and they started spending time together. And eventually, uh, their dating led to an engagement, and they got married. Uh, this is back in the early 80s. So it's been well over 30 years that Ken and Johnny have been married. Now, in those 30-plus years, as far as I know, and I'm fairly certain I, I, I have my facts correct here, Johnny has never cooked Ken a meal. Never. Now, that in of itself, if I knew that Debbie was never going to cook a meal for me, right? <laughs> I, I think I would have had second thoughts. Never... Never has Johnny cleaned the bathroom or vacuumed the floors, uh, cleaned any part of, of the house. I could go through this long list of things that I know she's never done for Ken. The kinds of things that you would typically expect a wife to do for her husband. And again, if you had told me before I met or before I asked Debbie to marry me, that you know she's not gonna she's not gonna clean for you, she's not gonna cook your meals. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll think again about this, right? But Ken, knowing before he asked her to marry him that she would never do those things because when she was just out of high school, she was paralyzed from the neck down. She she's is in a wheelchair. She can't do those things for him. And yet, when he married her, he said to himself, this is the woman that I'm going to serve, that I'm going to care for, and I'm going to love, even though there'll be lots of things in our marriage that she will never be able to do. That kind of fruit is what I believe Jesus is speaking about, where the people of God say to themselves, I'm going to be involved in a marriage. I'm going to be involved in a friendship. I'm going to be involved in the life of the church. I'm going to be involved in the community, in my country, in such a way that says, I'm not concerned about what other people are doing or what they won't do for me. I'm concerned about pleasing the vine dresser who has demonstrated his love by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for me. So my hope for us is that as we spend time, maybe in the future, looking at John 15, as you reflect on even this morning, as you think about your relationship with Christ, or maybe in some cases, the absence of such a relationship, that you would be reminded of the need for consequences. The consequences of what it means to abide in God to know him as your vine dresser, and to see fruit come out of such a relationship. Pray with me. Father, thank you for giving us this morning together. We again pray for Paula uh, and for Duke. We think about, Lord, um, this child that's been growing in the womb and how exciting this is for them, but for all of us as we celebrate together what uh, we think is taking place,
Uh, we pray for uh, whether it's today or tomorrow or soon, we believe. Uh, we pray for a healthy and safe birth. And we ask God that uh, as we reflect upon your word, that we would be receptive to you being our vine dresser and you would show us what it means to be fruitful. We ask and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's stand and sing as we uh, continue to worship. Uh, sing the song about abiding in Christ as we uh, walk in the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit, depending on Him, depending on God for His grace to do that. <laughs>